Hi, welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode 19 in the book of Hebrews titled, The New Covenant, from Hebrews chapter 8, verses 8 through 13. I'm Joel Harford, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, we are making our way through the book of Hebrews, and we come to, in my opinion, one of the most glorious chapters in this letter, and that is on the, on the New Covenant, specifically where he recounts from Jeremiah 31, the promise of a new covenant. Can you give us a brief overview of what we're going to find and why it's special in this chapter? Yeah, this is so exciting. I am so glad to be able to walk through this today and uh, just to talk about the greatness of the new covenant and the superiority of the new covenant to the old covenant and the promises that it, that it uh, gives us, the, the better promises. It's just like the author had said in, in verse 6 that this new covenant is superior to the old one and founded on better promises. And we're going to get to walk through what those better promises are. Amen. Well, I'm going to read verses 8 through 13 for the sake of our audience. And I want to give just a little context. The The author has uh, contrasted the the heavenly tent, which he calls the true tent, with the earthly tent, which is the pattern that God gave to Moses. Uh, but then he says, that the new covenant is much more excellent than the old because the covenant that Christ mediates is better mm. because it's enacted on better promises. And then going into verse 7, he says, For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for the second. Now verse 8, For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So Andy, my first question in this section is, what do these verses teach us about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? Right, I'm thinking again about our basic outline of the entire book of Hebrews, namely a superior mediator, Jesus, brings us a superior covenant, the New Covenant, resulting in a superior life. That's a good kind of general outline of the entire book of Hebrews. And so this is really the glowing center of that second Point, which is that the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. It's a better covenant founded on better promises and gives us a better hope, gives us joy, leading immediately to that better life, a life filled with hope, a life of faith, uh, a life in which we anticipate better things that are coming. And so for us, it's just the joy of being a Christian is the joy of the new covenant and the security it gives us. Can you explain this phrase in the text where the author says, for he finds fault with them. You know, God finds fault with them, the people. And explain why that shows the inferiority of the old covenant and conversely the superiority of the new covenant because we Christians still sin, yet he doesn't save us. He finds fault with us. Mm. 
Well, the problem with the Old Covenant was not the Old Covenant itself. There was nothing wrong with the Mosaic laws. Nothing was The, the law is holy and righteous and good, Paul tells us in Romans. Uh, the problem was with the people. Uh, that the, the law could not change the essential nature of the people, their corrupt hearts. You know, as, as Jeremiah himself said, can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard his spots? Neither can you, who are accustomed to doing evil, uh, begin to do right or do well. And so the, no, no amount of external inducements or external terrors like at Mount Sinai or external laws written in stone on stone tablets could change the essential heart nature of the people. So the fact that there needed to be a new covenant, that the old covenant could not save them, there was nothing wrong with the old covenant, but the old covenant was inferior and in some ways it, it was uh, limited because of the corruption of the people themselves. So it's key that the author uh, to the Hebrews says that God finds fault with them, namely the people, not with his own words that he gave to Moses. There was nothing wrong with the Ten Commandments. The problem was with the people. Right. Now, regarding the new covenant, what do you get out of God saying, I will establish a new covenant? Can you just explain God's agency in establishing covenant with men? Yeah. So this shows that God takes the leadership here. It was God that established the old covenant. He established the Mosaic covenant. And so God also establishes this new covenant. And so all of this comes from God. This is not something we could have made up on our own. Like we approached the throne and said, now we've got a better covenant. We're going we're gonna, to uh, obsolete the old covenant. We're going to make the new one. This all had to come from God. And we need to understand that God knew fully that this was going to come. This wasn't a surprise because he's quoting here Jeremiah, and we'll talk about that, I know, but uh, during the days of the Old Covenant, during the, the midst of all of those centuries in which the Mosaic Covenant was in force, God knew that a new covenant was coming. He knew it before the foundation of the world. And so for us, uh, we need to rely on the fact that this new covenant has been established by God. It is the Word of God. Is there any significance to the author mentioning the house of Israel and the house of Judah? Well, uh, you know, the, the history in the Old Covenant was how the Jewish people uh, divided into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. But together they were the sons of Abraham. And so he's speaking about the Jewish people. And so he needed to make a covenant with the Jewish people uh, that superseded the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. And so uh, that's who he's addressing here in the words of Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah was a prophet to the southern kingdom, to Judah. Uh, in the, in the uh, days before Jeremiah, the, um, the Assyrian nation had come and, and brought the, the northern kingdom, the, the nation of Israel, into exile. And so uh, they were, however, still God's people. They were still Jews. They were still descended from Abraham. So this is, God has in mind the entire 12 tribes, the, the nation of, of Israel. didn't matter politically whether they were the northern kingdom of Israel or the southern kingdom of Judah. Hmm. Now, how is this covenant not like the one he made with their fathers? You know, he gives this just tender fatherly image of a man leading a child out. You know, I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. And so you just see the, the tenderly fatherly mm. care. Um, but then he said that they didn't continue. And so he says, it's not going to be like that time. Right. Yeah, it's a beautiful image. And you get the same image powerfully in the book of Deuteronomy where God says, I carried you as a father carries his son all the way you went out of Egypt, 
through the Red Sea, through the burning desert, right to the Jordan River. I carried you as a father carries a son. Here he leads them by the hand out of bondage. And so it's very tender. But he's saying, look, the new covenant isn't going to be like that covenant. Because again, that covenant stayed on the outside of the hearts of the people. It did not produce any heart transformation. It just stood on the outside and proclaimed to them, thus says the Lord, and this is what God commands. And most of the Ten Commandments, for example, are negative. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. The only exception being, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. But God, with all of these prohibitions and all these external commandments, didn't change their heart. And neither did the summary you get in the book of Deuteronomy of the, of the uh, commands of God, uh, saying, first and greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is what Jesus said is the law, but it just proclaimed it. It didn't make them love anything. It didn't transform their hearts. And so that's why the new covenant was, not, was going to be better, superior, and not like the first covenant. Because that first covenant stayed on the outside of the hearts of the people and did not transform them at all. So I've heard you say now multiple times that the old covenant was external. Uh, can you explain how verse 10 shows that the new covenant is internal? It's, it's very different. Yeah, this is the essence of of the joy of the new covenant. And that is that God said, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. And so he starts right there. That's the internal transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's of the essence of the new covenant. God never turned away from any of the precepts and commandments of the old covenant saying, well, they were corrupt or I really didn't want you to do them anyway. He still wanted the people to not murder, not commit adultery, and not bear false witness, and not covet, and all of those those precepts. And, and he wanted them to love him with all their hearts and love their neighbors themselves. But uh, they couldn't do it because of their corrupted nature in Adam. They were they were perverted sinners, as all of us are. And so, from the outside, no salvation could come. But instead, we have a promise here in the new covenant of a transformation from within where he's going to light, write these laws on our, our hearts and in our minds. And there are two passages, powerful passages in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 11 and Ezekiel 36, which says that God will remove the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh, namely a heart sensitive to God's command. So this is the beginning of the transformation. The Holy Spirit comes on us and transforms our nature, the core of our being, so that we love righteousness and hate wickedness like Christ does. That's the essence of the superiority of the new covenant, the transformation by the Holy Spirit of our essential nature. Right. Now there's a disturbing clause in verse 9 that I personally find a little challenging, but it's where God says, Again, talking about the Old Covenant, I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Does that, does that bother you? How do you understand where God says, I showed no concern for them? Well, I think he's speaking of the nation of Israel. And sometimes the image is of a, of a marriage. And we've got this wayward wife like you get in the book of Hosea. Um, also, Jeremiah has that same image, how Israel was like a bride following her husband in the desert, and there was that strong affection. But then she went after other gods. She violated the covenant. She broke the covenant, and God turned away um, in disgust, turned away in revulsion, um, and had the right of divorce to some degree. You have that image of her being put away. And Isaiah uses that language also in his prophecy. <clears throat> and so 
the idea here is that because they had violated the covenant, uh, the covenant was broken like a marriage. Uh, and so there was the image of a divorce there. Now we need to keep in mind there's complexities here that are hard for us to understand. The nation of Israel as a whole is what he's dealing with here. Individual people within it, the elect, the remnant chosen by grace that Paul talks about in Romans 11, which uh, God says, I have reserved for myself 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. He never turned away from them individually. But as a nation, as a whole, their exile um, by the Assyrians and by the Babylonians looked like a divorce to some degree because they had been unfaithful. They had been whoring, really, after other gods, and so they had broken the covenant. Right. And the author gives these cool details where he says, they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. I want to focus in on verse 11 where it says, They shall not teach each one his neighbor, each one his brother. Is he talking about the consummation of this covenant in the new heavens and new earth? Or is he, is he using kind of poetic language to describe new covenant life here? Mm-hmm. Well, Jesus said in John 17 in his high priestly prayer, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So a deep heart knowledge of God is of the essence of our salvation. The old covenant didn't work salvation. The new covenant does. And so of the essence of it, the core of it, is that that we will be his people and he will be our God. It's an intimate covenant, like a, uh, an eternal marriage relationship, like a bride and a bridegroom. There, there's that intimate knowledge. And so all of us in the new covenant will have an intimate knowledge of God from the inside, again, ministered to us by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's essential to all of this. The Holy Spirit's the one that writes the laws of God in our minds and in our hearts. It's the Holy Spirit that brings us to a deep knowledge of God, a heart knowledge of God. And so we don't need, in some sense, anyone to teach us to know God, for we will know Him. Now, we need to be careful here. I think you're right. He's talking about the ultimate consummation in heaven where there will be no spiritual gifts and no spiritual gift ministries like pastor or teacher or evangelist or missionary. We don't need any of that in heaven. We'll be consummated in perfect knowledge of God. Now, on earth, we still have these spiritual gift ministries, like I just listed, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, that kind of thing, and we need them. And so we benefit from good teaching, just like we are hoping people will benefit from these podcasts, and there's some teaching ministry that goes on. I don't think the author of Hebrews is saying we don't need teachers, But I think there is something here that first and foremost, the Holy Spirit goes ahead of the spiritual gift ministries and works a place in the hearts of the people for the teaching they're about to receive. The soil is soft and ready and upturned. And we have, as John says in 1 John, you have an anointing from the Holy Spirit and all of you knows the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. So he's like, well, then why are you writing the epistle? (laughs) Well, because there's still some teaching that needs to go on, but what I think it is is the unction or anointing of the Holy Spirit enables us to identify and love the truth as soon as we hear it. And so we already know the Lord, but now we're going to know Him even better in this world. So that's the the role of, of teachers and preachers and all that. But in heaven, it's consummated. We don't need any of that. We will know the Lord, all of us, from the least to the greatest. We will know Him. Right. Now, we've talked before, I think it was in Hebrews chapter 3, about uh, church membership, and we're going to talk about that again 
in chapter 10. Mm -hmm. um, do you think the way God describes the new covenant adds another dimension for why we believe in what we call regenerate church membership, that yeah. all the members should be believers? Absolutely. We are covenanting together with other people who know the Lord and who have had hearts transformed. They've had the heart of stone removed, a heart of flesh put in. They love God's law. They may not know it perfectly yet. That's why you have teachers, as I just said a moment ago. But they do love whatever they've learned. And they will continue to learn more and more. And we want to be with, with people like that. We want to be in a covenant relationship with brothers and sisters who, who the, these aspects of the new covenant are at work. Uh, they have had God's laws written in their minds and their hearts, meaning they love them. Um, they are God's people, and He is their God. They're already in that covenant soul marriage relationship with God through Christ. Uh, we want to be with people like that and uh, you know, whose sins are forgiven and wickedness is remembered no more. That's regenerate covenant, re regenerate church membership. That's who we want to be together with in church, for sure. Right. Now, in this text here, he, he speaks of the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I'm going to ask an obvious question from other parts of Scripture, but I just want you to, to answer it. Is Are the Gentiles in this covenant, too? Well, I mean, the yes, they are, of course. Uh, there is no, there's no other covenant for us. Um, this book of Hebrews is written to Jewish professors of faith in Christ. So these are Jews who have made a profession of faith in Christ, and they're under pressure to turn their backs on Jesus and go back to Old Covenant Judaism. And so the author's three-part argument here is, why in the world would you want to do that? You'd be turning your back on a superior mediator, the Son of God, who's a radiance of God's glory, and superior to every created being, and you'd be turning your back on the superior covenant that he brought, the new covenant, which is so much better than the old covenant. And you'd be turning your back on the superior life of faith in the new covenant. So why would you want to do that? So that, it is written for, for Jewish believers. But we Gentiles stand on the outside and we're reading this and we are drawn into this new covenant by faith in Christ. Think about the Gentiles like... Uh, the Macedonians who, who said in Acts 16, come over and help us. And they went over and preached to the Gentiles this, this uh, new covenant message. Uh, they didn't know anything about the old covenant or new covenant or anything. They were just pagans. But we find out in Romans 11 very plainly that there is basically one work that God is doing in the world. And he's, he's doing it in, in Abraham, really. Salvation comes from the Jews, as Jesus said to the Samaritan woman. And so there is an Abrahamic heritage uh, that's likened to a cultivated olive tree with a developed root system in the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then all of the Jewish history, including Moses and the Old Testament law. And the, the Gentiles are like wild olive shoots from some other olive tree that's not got anything to do with that heritage. And they are, are kind of severed off from their wild olive tree, and they're grafted in to this cultivated Jewish olive tree and derive nourishing sap from the, the root system, which is the heritage, the Jewish heritage. So we become honorary Jews. We become, like Galatians says, sons and daughters of Abraham, though we are Gentiles. We become honorary adopted sons and daughters of Abraham, and so we become honorary Jews with our hearts circumcised by the Spirit, not our flesh by the written code. So we become Jews, and we read this as though it were speaking directly to us. Right. Now, in verse 12, he says, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I'll remember their sins no more. So what is the significance of this phrase, that he will be merciful toward their iniquities? It's obviously very different uh, from the old, because he just said he found fault with them. But why is this so significant? 
And we're going to find out even more clearly as we, as we really unfold the limitations of the animal sacrificial system in the next chapter. But fundamentally, here it is. The Old Covenant didn't give any of these promises that Jeremiah lists here. Jeremiah is listing the elements of the New Covenant that are superior to the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant didn't give any of them. First of all, the Old Covenant didn't write its laws in our minds and on our hearts, didn't tra transform our nature. Secondly, not by the Old Covenant is God our God and we his people, because he found fault and cut them off and divorced them because they couldn't keep it. And so our permanent relationship, love relationship, covenant relationship with God is not going to be on the basis of the Old Covenant because we couldn't keep it, but on the basis of the New. So our, our, our deep covenant final relationship with Almighty God is on the basis of this New Covenant. Old Covenant didn't give it. And then thirdly, forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins never came by the Old Covenant for the blood of bulls and goats never paid for any sin, ever. They were just types and shadows of the real salvation and atoning work that was yet to come in the future in the new covenant and so this is this is what it's all about here at the end i will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more it is on the basis of christ and his death on the cross his bloodshed of which the animals were just types and shadows on that basis and on that basis alone are our sins forgiven not because of old covenant sacrifices so the new covenant is superior in every way to the old covenant it gives us a transformed nature in which we love righteousness and hate wickedness. We love the laws of God, the moral laws of God, such as love the Lord your God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself and all the Ten Commandments, that we embrace them and delight in them. And then secondly, that we're in an intimate relationship with God where He knows us as His people, as His spouse, really, spiritual spouse, and we know Him as the lover of our souls. And then thirdly, on the basis of the new covenant, are all of our sins and wickedness forgiven? And he remembers them no more. That's the superiority of the new covenant. Old covenant didn't give us any of those three things. Right. I want to pick up on that, that second thing you listed about, you know, God being our God. And he says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And we see this refrain over and over again in the Old Testament. God's desire to carve out a people for his own possession. You know, he calls Israel a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Can you talk about how God is glorified in assembling for himself a people? Why does he do this? Why does he put up with us? Why does he put up with the unfaithful bride? But he has this desire. He, he says over and over, I will be their God. They're going to be my people. So why does God do this? Wow, what a great, great question. I guess the, the way, first of all, I'm going to say it negatively. It's not because he needed us. Or needed anything. In the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, there was perfect fellowship, perfect friendship, no loneliness, uh, perfect fullness. But it's because of his essential nature of love. God is love, and love overflows and wants to share with another. That's the essence of a healthy marriage. I want to give to you. I want to give of myself to you. And I want us to have a relationship, this intimate relationship. So God created us in his image to have a relationship with us so that he could do us good by giving us of himself. That he would share himself with us. That's the essence of fellowship or communion with God. He's sharing himself with us. And he did it because he's a full being, full of love. The sin got in the way. But he removed that, and now he's able to do what he's always wanted to do, which is share himself with us. Think about little details. There's one thing much sticks in my mind where Jesus said to his disciples, I think in Luke 22, 
I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. In other words, it is the deepest desire of my heart to share this meal with you. It's like, why? Remember, they were bickering about which of them was the greatest. That's pathetic. What is there about us you love? But he knew what we would become, not what we were. We were filthy, wicked, wretched, treacherous rebels. (laughs) That's true. But he knew what we what we were meant to be originally and what we will be eternally, created and redeemed in his image and able to have a perfect relationship with him. And that's what he was looking ahead for. So he wants that. He wants to give us himself. And he's going to spend eternity in heaven giving himself to us. And we're going to just drink it in and love it and enjoy it. Yeah, it's so incredible. I think those who see Christianity as just another comparative religion similar to you know, the Greek religions or the ancient Near Eastern religions, they really don't understand that this is what the God of Israel was intending to do, was give of himself. Uh, They, you know, the other pagan deities, they're take, take, require, lay burdens on the people. You got to carry the idol around. You got to sacrifice your child to them. Um, But this God comes and he gives himself. It's, It's just incredible. It is. And then he frees us up first to eternally receive of himself, We'll be in constant receiver mode in heaven, receiving, receiving, receiving. And we will be fit and equipped to receive more and more and more from God. But we will also be in giving mode in heaven. Whatever was ours to give, we will give to God in worship and give to each other in love. We will share our things with each other. Uh, Whatever our stories or our rewards, our glory, we'll share with another in the name of Christ And we'll receive from others, other brothers and sisters, what they had to share with us. That's what heaven's all about. Right. Now, God talks about he's going to establish this covenant. He's going to give this covenant. So how does someone get into this covenant? Well, we believe it's clearly taught in the book of Romans that it is by faith and by faith alone, by faith in Christ. And so by trusting in him, repenting from our sins, turning away from our sins, and believing in Jesus that he is God in the flesh who died on the cross for sinners like you and me who shed his blood as an atoning sacrifice for us. By faith in him are our sins forgiven. By faith in him are we reconciled to God. By faith in Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, we are united with Christ and through Christ with God. That's how we access this new covenant. Right. And Peter says it's the promises for you, for your children, and for all who are far off. So anybody in the entire world can get into this covenant by faith in Christ. Right, he says, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And so as we are called into that. Yeah, so vastly superior to the old covenant. Absolutely, absolutely. What about this last verse? He says, in speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, we believe this is written prior to 70 AD. Can you explain why that is so significant at this point. Absolutely. Uh, first of all, it's an incredible statement. And, and as, as I you know, spent time studying this book, memorizing it, working on it, it just gave me more and more clarity of speech and boldness to teach. And that's what, what really studying God's Word gives you a sense of absolute certainty that the Old Covenant is obsolete. I mean, imagine saying something that sounds so disparaging to something that God did. But like circumcision, as a requirement, a religious requirement, is obsolete. Don't need to do it. It's done. And so also, all of the ceremonial law, and then the essential, do these and these things and you will live, don't do them and you will die. 
Blessings and curses, that's obsolete. Uh, the law cannot kill our souls. So that's obsolete. So that's a powerful thing. This, this old covenant is obsolete. A more kind of amiable word Jesus used was fulfilled. Both of them are true. It's fulfilled and therefore obsolete. The time is done. And so Jesus fulfilled it. And so I think of it that way. But then the author goes on to make this assertion. And this obsolete and aging covenant will soon pass away or disappear. So there's something about to come. Now, Jesus predicted it in his lifetime when he was walking out of the temple area, Herod's temple, and the disciples were so amazed at the magnitude of the stones. Look, what great stones, what incredible buildings. And Jesus said, do you see all these things? Not one of these stones will remain on another. Every one of them will be cast down. And by this, he was predicting the destruction of the temple. Now, you mentioned 70 AD. That's when that was fulfilled. The Romans, because the, the Jews, the zealots, you know, the nationalists were rebelling against Roman rule. They did not realize that Roman rule was going to go on for centuries. Not, not another few years, not another few decades. Not 70 years like the Babylonian exile. Centuries. They weren't even close to the end of, of the Roman era. And so they thought to rebel and to take back their land. And God said no. And God crushed them. And he, part of that was, uh, through the Romans, destroyed, burned the temple to the ground. And not one stone was left on another. And it's never been rebuilt. And providentially, this was God putting an end to the Old Covenant animal sacrificial system. That's his way of saying, that is finished. You can't do it. Now, we Christians know that it's finished, it's obsolete and gone. And the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and all that. And... Uh, but it's interesting about the curtain being torn from top to bottom, saying that a new and living way has been opened for us into the Holy of Holies. So all of that old covenant separation and exclusivism, all of that's over in the body of Jesus. That's clearly done. But some Jewish priests, I guess, sewed the thing back up or had another one made. And for many decades after Jesus' death, they continued the animal sacrificial system. Finally, God put an end to it. And so whatever new curtain they put back up there, God burned to ashes. And so now, of course, Jews all over the world go to the Wailing Wall, which is whatever is left of the foundation of the temple, I guess. And they're yearning for a reestablishment, it seems, of the Old Covenant and of animal sacrifice. But we know that that's all been fulfilled in Jesus. And so this is a clear prediction right here, Hebrews 8.13 of the end of the animal sacrificial system, but it's also an indication that the author was writing before that had happened. Yeah, you mentioned the, the Jews still going to the Wailing Wall and uh, the expectation of you know maybe one day resurrecting the temple. Um, why is it so crucial for just understanding Christianity and the coming of Christ as a fulfillment of the Old Covenant and really validating uh, the work of Christ and work of the apostles, the fact that the author goes back to Jeremiah and he's pulling, he's teaching us from Jeremiah. Why is that so important? Well, he's going to want to say to Jewish people, look, this is the very thing God had planned all along. Just like going all the way back to the call of Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees. And through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. God always intended to include the Gentiles. He always had this in mind. And so Paul frequently makes these, these historical arguments. Like, was Abraham justified before he was circumcised or after? It was not after, but before. And, and he was justified before he was circumcised. And so he makes these sequential arguments. The same thing in Galatians. The law came centuries later. 
so also this, the promise of the new covenant came in the midst of the old covenant yeah. and, and said, look, this, is, this was not uh, oh, plan B. This is what God had always intended. He established the old covenant to teach us that not by works could we ever be saved, that the Jews basically sinned on behalf of all nations. No nation should ever say, hey, if it had been us, we would have done better. Just like no individual should say that about Adam in the garden. All right, Adam represented us, the Jews represented us, and they sinned. And so by failing to keep the old covenant, we realize that none of us can be justified by works, but only by faith in Christ. Right. Do you have any final comments on this section? Absolutely. Just drink in the threefold promise of this new covenant that's superior to the old covenant. First and foremost, a transformed nature that he puts his laws in our minds and on our hearts. So what this teaches us is like in Romans 8, 1 through 4, by the Spirit, God fulfills the righteous requirements of the law in our hearts. That points toward holiness. We can't throw off the law and think that we're Christians. It is by the power of the Spirit we live upright, transformed lives. So that there's no holiness, there's no salvation. Author's going to say that later in Hebrews 12. Secondly, just the intimate connection that we have with God, the covenant relationship with God, that He is our God and we are His people and that we know Him, not just head knowledge, but we know Him intimately as a husband knows his wife and a wife knows her husband intimately and completely in a covenant relationship. That's what the new covenant is all about, relationship with God. And then finally, that all of our sins are forgiven. He will forgive our wickedness and remember our sins no more. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't know that we sinned. He always knows that because he's omniscient. But what it means is that we are so completely covered in the atoning work of Christ, it's as though we have never sinned. Our sins put us at no relational disadvantage with God. We are completely forgiven. Those three promises should make us joyful and hope-filled every day of our lives. Amen. Well, that was episode 19 in the book of Hebrews. Please join us next time for episode 20. And we're going to talk about how the main message of the Old Covenant and the earthly tabernacle was, as Andy said, restricted access. You must not come in. But how Christ has ripped open the curtain, and now the message is, is come. And so we'll talk about that next time. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and God bless you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.